All right. Good morning, everyone. So we'll be in the uh, Gospel of Luke this morning, chapter 4. We're going to look at verses 1 through 13. Taking a break from our studies in the book of Exodus. We'll be in the Gospel of Luke this morning. Luke chapter 4. The topic of the study this morning is Jesus resists the temptations of Satan for, over, for a period of over 40 days by abiding in the word of God. And the title of our message, The 40 Days of Resistance. So let's pray. Father, thanks so much for your word. We know it's living, it's powerful, it's sharper than any two-edged sword. It's able to divide between the soul and the spirit, Lord, and, and get down into our heart and do that spiritual work, Lord, that we need. Lord, you told us that it is truth and that, it, and that we're able to be sanctified by the truth, to be changed into the image of Christ day by day. And that, Lord, and that is our desire, that we would have this encounter with Christ this morning, that we would leave this place filled with him and, and representing him in the world. Lord, our world is dark and it's continuing to get even more and more worse. Lord, but we know that you have placed us as lights and salt, Lord, in this earth to make a difference, Lord. You've given us a mission and a task, Lord, and we want to be on that task, Lord. And so help us to be faithful in these things by abiding in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Are you with the resistance, right? This was that question asked to FN2187 or Finn, if you're a Star Wars geek and Star Wars 7. If you're not a Star Wars geek, I'm just going to apologize to you this morning. Finn was that stormtrooper, right, in the First Order, right? The First Order is that evil empire started by Supreme Leader Snoke, now led by Kylo Ren, the once good Jedi, and turned to the dark side. It's a little spoiler if you haven't seen the movie. I'm sorry. It's been over a month, so if you haven't seen it now, then it's okay. Now, the mission of the First Order is what? To destroy the resistance and to rule the galaxy. But Finn, because of his convictions, he left the First Order. He escaped with the help of that resistance pilot, Poe Dameron. And after Finn's escape, he became involved with the resistance, and now he has a vital role in the Star Wars movie, and, but also he's the enemy now of Kylo Ren and the First Order. Now that's Finn's story. What about your story? Well, you might not know this, but you are with the resistance. Let me take a moment to explain. You and I were once sin troopers in the enemy's evil and dark empire. Listen to what Ephesians tells us in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. I'm just going to read from the New Living Translation here. It says, Once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins, you used to live in sin just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers in the unseen world. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. All of us used to live that way. Fallen the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature, and by our very nature we were subject to God's anger, just like everyone else. The unbeliever doesn't realize this, but they're actually held captive by the devil in his evil empire to do his will. This was you and I before we came to know Jesus. But Christ set us free. Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14 describes that. He says, He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of his love, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. And so Christ pulled off the greatest rescue mission of history. You see, God became a man through the Virgin Mary, and he lived and walked this earth. He went to the cross, and at the cross, he made a way for all to be delivered. He shed his blood on our behalf to pay the price of our sin. He's offered grace to all mankind, allowing us to be able to believe, but also to be saved 
And those who are saved are now part of his story of redemption. We have a vital role in God's mission. And that mission is to then go back out and to share with others that we also have this freedom, that they can have this freedom. And that's called the Great Commission. It's the rescue plan of God. Now, this brings us to our topic of spiritual warfare and resistance. You see, Jesus defeated Satan at the cross. And he will ultimately defeat Satan when he comes back at his second coming. But until that day, the enemy will continue to fight and he'll continue to oppose the work of God and the child of God until Christ ultimately gets that victory. And that's where you and I come in. Well, what are we to do now as believers? Just like Finn, because of his association with the, um, with the resistance, is now the enemy of the first order, even so you and I, because of our allegiance with Jesus and his mission, we are now a target of the enemy. Well, we're not to run, we're not to hide, didn't found that out right. We're to become involved with the work of the Lord and his mission. Rather than fight and rather than run, we're to continue to resist. And that's what we see in the example of the New Testament and also in Christ himself. In chapter four, we'll see that Jesus at the start of his public ministry faces spiritual warfare and opposition from the devil for over a period of 40 days. But yet he's able to remain on his mission and stay faithful to the Father by resisting the enemy and by abiding in his word. And that's the principle set forth for you and I as believers. As we look at this passage, we'll focus on three points this morning. Number one, the power behind the resistance. Number two, the first order and their tactics. And number three, the leader of the resistance and his example. So first in verse one, the power behind the resistance. Then Jesus, being filled with the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led into the, uh, by the Spirit into the wilderness. So the word then links us back to chapter three. And in chapter three, we see the baptism of Jesus and also the genealogy of Jesus. The baptism of Jesus is, was the beginning of his public ministry. There the Lord always filled with the Spirit, walking with the Father, but yet at his baptism, there was a special outpouring of the Spirit upon him. We're told that the Spirit came upon him in the form of a dove, and all saw that. That bore witness to John and the rest that he was truly the Messiah, this anointed one, but also bears witness to the believer that our lives and ministries must be dependent on the Holy Spirit like Christ. This becomes even more evident because Luke follows that with the genealogy of Jesus. And he traces Jesus' line through Mary back to Adam, showing us that while Jesus was fully God, he was also fully man. And as man, he chose to set aside those attributes of God, those, those independent uses of them, and to be filled with God's spirit and to be controlled and led by God's spirit. Christ's life is seen as in, by exemplifying God's power, his leading, and also his authority, and we're to do the same. We see God's, uh, Jesus' dependency on God's power here at the beginning of chapter four. We see that Jesus was filled with the spirit. Jesus is gonna enter this period of temptation and testing not by his own power, but by being filled with the spirit. That was his strength. And he did this to demonstrate to all believers that as we face opposition, we also have the power to, to resist. Now, the same spirit that was given to Jesus is the same spirit that lives in you and I. The same spirit that came upon Jesus is the same spirit that comes upon us, Acts 1.8 says, when we ask by faith. And the same spirit that led Jesus is the same spirit that will lead us. We see there that he was led into the wilderness by the Father, now, the Holy Spirit's not a force. He's not the force. He's a person. The Bible says that there's one God in three persons, right? The Father, the Son, 
and the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus wasn't alone in the wilderness. The abiding presence of the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, was with him during this time. And the same is true for you and I as we walk in this world. The Spirit is with us. Before Jesus went to the cross, he told his disciples, hey, guys, I'm leaving. Don't be sad. It's for your advantage. If I go, the Father will send a helper to you. And, it's, you know, and, and that's your blessing, your benefit. And Jesus did. He, he left. He went to heaven. He's in heaven now with the Father. And he sent the Holy Spirit to come alongside of us. He's called another helper because he's the same kind, he has the same kind of nature as Jesus. And so just as Jesus walked with his disciples and ministered to them and helped them through their needs, even so the Spirit is alongside the believer now helping us as we walk the Christian life. Now the place that Jesus was led was from the Jordan River to the wilderness. It's that barren desert northwest of the Dead Sea. And this is really the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. Think about it. So for some 30 years, he's been obscurity, living in, in his home in Nazareth, working as a carpenter, being trained from the Father for his public ministry. His public ministry begins at his baptism. And now rather than going out and having this great public evangelism, you know, evangelist ministry, he goes and is tested for 40 days in the wilderness. Does this seem like a waste of time? Why would God allow this testing? Well, it was not to see if Jesus would sin. It's to show everybody that Jesus could not sin, that he didn't sin. You see, God wants to demonstrate to the world that Jesus is sinless. And just as a person will show off their car, test drive, in order to show it the power of it, right? And the fact that you want, even so, God shows us through these tests that Jesus is truly the one that we're to follow. He is the Messiah. He's the anointed one. That's what the word Messiah means. And in the Old Testament, prophets, priests, and kings were all anointed. And Jesus fulfills that threefold role in his life. He is the prophet, as promised in Deuteronomy 18. You see, Moses there promised the children of Israel, he says, hey guys, there's going to become the prophet, one like me, and he's going to lead you into the kingdom and salvation. The way that you'll know him is he'll follow the law, and he'll represent the law from his life. Jesus here is tested by the enemy, and three times he's going to quote from Deuteronomy, from the law, showing that, that he is the prophet. Second, he's our great high priest. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16 says that we have a great high priest. It says, seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. And so... This time of temptation reveals, hey, that Jesus, he experienced every type of temptation that we do, and yet he was without sin. He's able to sympathize with us, and because he's victorious, he's able to offer us the grace and help that we need in our hours of struggle. He's the king. You see, Adam in the Garden of Eden was given the role of the king of the earth. He had this inheritance, but what did he do? He sinned, and as a result, he forfeited that right of dominion over to Satan, Jesus is not going to make that same mistake as the king. In contrast to Adam, Christ will face temptation not on a full stomach and also in a beautiful garden, but he's going to face temptation in extreme hunger in the wilderness. And rather than give in to these temptations, he'll prevail and he'll be victorious. So Luke shows us very clearly, hey, this is the one you want to follow. He is our leader. Here's a quick application as we talk about resistance and walking in God's will. If you feel like that you're in a time of testing this morning or you're facing opposition, look to Jesus. 
You see, God has given you the power to help you just as he did Jesus through that time. He's given you all the available resources, the spirit in you, the spirit upon you, the spirit with you to be able to remain victorious in what God's called you to do. Maybe your life feels like a time of being in the wilderness. Maybe it feels like you're ineffective. You feel like you should be doing something greater. Well, you know what? Look at Jesus. God began his public ministry by 40 days in the wilderness. But think about what God did through this account. It's being studied by you and I. It's being studied through, you know, throughout the years, showing that God's able to work out his will and to reveal himself in ways that are beyond our understanding. Now we come to our second point in verse 2, the first order in their tactics. Then being tempted for 40 days by the devil, and in those days he ate nothing, and afterward when he had ended, he was hungry. So just as our military, right, they need to know something about the character and tactics of their enemy so they can know how to do battle against them. Even so, you and I as a believer, we need to know something about the character and tactics of Satan so we can resist him. And that's what we're given here in this verse. We're told here that the person behind these temptations was no other than the devil. For 40 days, he's going to attack Jesus. And then he's going to end these 40 days with a threefold attack on the Lord. Who is the devil? Well, the devil is a created being. He's not the opposite of God. He's a fallen angel. Before he was called the devil, he was called Lucifer, and we're told about him in the book of Isaiah and Ezekiel. You see, he was a cherub. He was around the throne of God. He was filled with pride. He wanted to be like God. He wanted to be worshiped as God, and as a result, God cast him out of heaven. Well, Revelation 12.4 says that when he was cast out of heaven, he deceived one-third of the angels of heaven to fall in his rebellion, and they are now what we call demons, and that is the devil. These fallen angels are sealed in their rebellion. They're without grace in a means to be saved. And they'll continue to oppose the people of God and the work of God until, until their destruction. Now, what are some of their tactics? Well, here's a brief list that we see as we read through the Bible. The enemy has attacked believers' physical health. We see that in the book of Job. He accuses believers before the throne of God, but he's not, you know, he's not victorious in that because we have Christ, who is our advocate, there before the throne. He's behind the false teachings and the cults of the world. Paul calls those doctrines of demons. He's deceived people by masquerading himself as an angel of light. Think about Muhammad. What do you see? He saw, suppose he saw this angel of light, Joseph Smith. He deceives people through this appearance. He does lion signs and wonders. We see that in Exodus, right? The magicians were able to do these signs. And in Revelation, we're told that the Antichrist and his false prophet will be able to do, work these signs. He's a murderer. He's use non-believers to persecute and even kill believers. He blinds the minds of unbelievers to keep them in darkness. He plucks the word from people's hearts that are hard. We're told that in the parable of the sower, right? The seed is sown, which is the word. Those who have a hard heart, the birds come and snatch it up. And Jesus said, that's the enemy. Also, he seeks to hinder missionary endeavors. Paul said, I wanted to come to you in 1 Thessalonians, but I was hindered by the devil. If you've ever been on a mission trip, you see this in action. The enemy is seeking to oppose that work. And finally, he tempts believers to sin. Now, temptation is a tried and effective tactic of Satan. It's worked from the Garden of Eden. It's worked throughout human history. Why give up now, right? And so that's what he applies here in this situation with Jesus. Now, why is temptation so effective on the human heart? Well, it's effective, we're told, in 1 John, because of the world in which we live and how the enemy works. The world in which we live, he says in 519, 
We know that we are of God and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. Also, we're told in 2.16, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. You see, the unbelieving world is held sway from the wicked one. The innovative ideas and new ideas of the world to ensnare people in sin and turn people away from God, they don't come from man's genius. They come from this devil, this enemy, this wicked one who is keeping men under their sway in order to appeal to men's flesh, in order to keep people enslaved in sin. Those things can be categorized in three areas, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. Mankind is consumed by these things. Now, it's important for you and I as believers to be aware of this because this is the world in which we live. You see, as believers in Jesus, it's easy for us now in the 21st century to only think scientifically or naturally, right? Everything can be explained by science, the world wants to tell us. Everything can be explained naturally. Well, they can't explain the supernatural realm. And there is a supernatural realm. And that is the influence behind the unbelieving world that we live in today. And the Bible says we need to be aware of these things. We need to walk circumspectly of these things so we can know how we must resist. Now, don't forget the fallen nature of mankind. You see, people are born dead in sin. The good news is that the believer, through the cross, our old nature has been crucified with Christ. Our sin nature has been put to death. So now we can have power over, the, over our sin nature. But the bad news is we still have a flesh. The flesh are those evil desires, those propensities to sin. They still remain in our physical body. And so while the believer has power over sin, we will nevertheless still continue to struggle with the flesh as we walk with the Lord. But the Bible says that we can have victory over these. So these are our enemies. It's the devil. It's this fallen network of demons in this world system. We must resist these influences that appeal to the flesh and follow our mission as we, you know, as we walk with the Lord. We're to be in the world, but not of the world. And this is where it gets fun, right, as a believer, because obviously you can't build like a commune, right, on an island and separate these, yourself from these things. We're in the world, and that's where we're called to be. But we need to know how to conduct ourselves in this world as we fulfill our mission. That's what we're told here in this passage. So now we see our third example in verses 3 through 13. We see the leader of the resistance in his example. You see, while Jesus um, was God, he, you know, and as he walked as a man, he didn't have a nature like us. Yes, he was human, but he didn't have a flesh. And so that means that when the enemy brings these temptations to him, he had no inward pull towards sin. It's similar to what Adam and Eve faced in the Garden of Eden. They had no flesh, no sin nature either. But yet the attack was outward, and it was focused on their will. Would they choose to use their will to follow these ways of the enemy? And they chose, but, but Jesus will not. So let's look at this first temptation in verse three. And the devil said to him, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. So the first temptation focused on what Jesus felt. And verse two makes it very clear that he was hungry. He fasted for 40 days. If you ever fasted for one day, maybe you know you gotta get a blood test. And man, it's like, <laughs> I'm, gonna, I'm gonna pass out right now, right? Think about fasting, not eating anything for 40 days. Wow, and then after these 40 days, the enemy is gonna come with this strong attack. We're told here that he began experiencing extreme hunger pains. Some believe that he was actually at the point of starving. And this is when the enemy comes to take advantage of the situation, to tempt him. He said, if you are the son of God, command the stone to become bread. Now, this is not a question. The if should be sense. 
right? The, uh, the enemy saying, since you are the son of God, you're all powerful. Come on, do something about your hunger right now. Turn this stone into, you know, into bread. Now, there was nothing sinful in and of itself of Jesus turning a stone into bread. Jesus would later do miracles. He would multiply five loaves and two fish to feed the multitudes. But what made this sin would be for Jesus to operate in his own will and in his own way. Jesus was to remain in the will of God and continue to be led by the Father. You see, it was God who led Jesus out into the wilderness for this 40-day period. And he wasn't to do a miracle to satisfy himself. He was to remain submitted to the Father. Look at verse 4. But Jesus answered him, saying, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. Jesus applies the tactic of resistance. Jesus resists this temptation and he applies the authority of the word of God. It is written, I love that, Jesus believed that the Bible is the word of God. He used it as his authority, and we should do the same, right? Regardless of if he was the son of God, regardless of if he had all power, he was to remain in God's will and also in God's word. Jesus uses Deuteronomy 8.3 here to apply the scripture to his life. In Deuteronomy 8.1-3, we're told here that Moses was speaking to the children of Israel God was speaking to them. They were the second generation. They had gone through for 40 years in the wilderness, and they were getting ready to cross over into the land of Canaan. And God wanted to make it very clear on what he taught them through this 40-year period. He taught them that it was a time of humbling. It was a time of testing. It was a time of teaching. God taught them that he was their provision, that he was the one that they were to trust, and he was the source of all blessing. He said, you know, they were going to go into the land and they were going to receive all the blessings of the fruit and the harvest. But they were to always remember that it was God who was the one who was behind all their blessings. And in verse 3, we're told that for 40 years, their clothes didn't wear out, nor did their feet even swell. That's pretty cool, right? God said, for 40 years, your clothes didn't wear out, your feet didn't swell. I kept you. I provided for you. Trust me as you go into the land. Don't trust the natural things. Well, Jesus applied this to his, to his 40 days in the wilderness. You see, he wasn't to rely on natural things. He was to rely on the Father who had him in this situation, that God was going to provide for him and God was going to bring him through it. God had a purpose and a plan. Now, I'm pretty sure, like me, you've never been tempted by the devil to turn a stone into bread, right? I, I've never been tempted to do that. Well, the enemy's not dumb. He's aware of our weaknesses, and that's not an area of weakness that we struggle with because we don't have that power. The areas of weakness in the believer might be different. It might you know, be a, a whole range of different things as we are in this room today. But nevertheless, they all kind of fall around the same type of thing, which is to compromise holiness for the physical feeling of happiness and satisfaction. It's the, tempor it's the temporary. Compromise holiness for the temporary feeling of satisfaction and happiness. And just like Jesus, we, we must resist this temptation from the enemy and understand that true happiness and sanctification doesn't come from outward things. They only vanish and go away. It comes from that abiding relationship with the Father. It comes from following his will and his word. Israel would need to know that when they went into the land. And what happened? They forgot that. They began relying on the blessings around them. They forgot God. And what happened? He brought judgment on them. They were distant from the Lord, and they, they stopped being blessed. Jesus said, blessed, over and over in Matthew 5, right, the Beatitudes we call them, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the pure in heart, 
The word blessed means, oh, how happy. Oh, how happy. True happiness and true satisfaction comes in following God's will and following God's word. And Jesus understood that. And we need to as we walk with him. That the only way that we can truly be happy and truly be satisfied is found in a relationship with God. Because God has placed eternity in our heart. It's that hole that we all try to fill with different things. But ultimately, it's fulfilled with that relationship with the Lord. Verse 5. Then the devil, taking him up on a high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in, in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, all this authority I will give you and their glory, for this has been delivered to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you'll worship before me, all will be yours. So the second temptation now focuses on what Jesus could see. You see, the devil took Jesus up on this high mountain, and in a moment of time, he flashed before him the luxury, the authority, and the glory of the greatest world empires. This must have been a great temptation. As I said, Jesus was 30 years in Nazareth, a poor family in Nazareth. And now he's been 40 days in the wilderness without eating. This was a real temptation. Satan was like Robin Leach. Remember Robin Leach? <laughs> Lifestyles of the rich and famous. Sorry, I'm a kid of the 90s, right? That's, <laughs> what do you want to watch? Lifestyles of the rich and famous, right? And so that's, that's what happened here. He says, hey, look at this. Look at this glory. All this can be yours right now if you'll just bow down and worship me. Could Satan really offer this to Jesus? The devil is a liar, right? But notice Jesus didn't debate the enemy on this point. In Revelation 12 and 13, we're told that the future, future Antichrist will rule the world in power, glory, and authority. And he's given these things from the serpent, from the devil himself. All the world will be commanded to receive this mark, right? Of course, you know, the good news is we'll, you know, we'll be out of here. We'll be raptured by then. But the enemy will control the world. And it'll be through this influence of Satan. Just as with the first temptation, there's nothing sinful about Jesus ruling over mankind in glory and authority. He will rule, Revelation 20 says. He'll come back a second time with this church, establish his kingdom on this earth, and we'll live there with the Lord, which will turn into eternity, in which we live with the Lord in the New Jerusalem. He will rule as the King of kings and Lord of lords. But what makes this sin is the means and the time in which he would receive this kingdom. Jesus' right to rule would not come from his worship of Satan, but his obedience to the Father's will, which would ultimately lead to the cross. You see, in Revelation 5, we're told that it was the lamb slain who was worthy to open the scroll and loose its seals. They said, who is worthy to open these things? Now, the scroll is God's will, his, 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 his inheritance to execute these judgments and also to establish the kingdom on the earth. And John wept because nobody was worthy. And then he says, behold, the lamb who was slain. Jesus came and took the scroll of the right hand of the Father, and he is the one who's going to execute these things. And we're told that he's able to do that because he prevailed. Prevailed refers to the fact that Jesus is going to go to the cross, die for the sins of the world, defeat sin, Satan, and death, rise again from the dead, and as a result, have this right to rule. Paul will echo that also in Acts 13. In Acts 13, he's talking to a Jewish audience, and he says, hey, guys, Psalm 2 was fulfilled. The one Jesus has been begotten through his resurrection from the dead. So Christ's resurrection and his death is his right to rule, and he couldn't bypass the cross for the crown. He had to go to the cross, and as a result of going to the cross, he can receive the crown. Now, as far as the time, we're told in Psalm 110, he's to sit at the Father's right hand until his Father makes his enemies his footstool. The time in which Jesus rules and reigns is decided from the Father, not from the enemy himself. Verse 8, 
And Jesus answered and said to him, Get behind me, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. Now, Jesus is going to use this phrase, Get behind me, Satan, again, when he rebukes Peter, right, in Matthew 16, 23. Jesus is going to tell his disciples, he says, Hey, guys, let me ask you a question. Who do people say that I am? And Peter's going to say, Well, you're the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus is going to say, all right, Peter, good job. Bless you. My father revealed that to you. And then he began telling them that he was going to go to the cross and suffer. And Peter said, oh, Lord, let me talk to you for a second. And he began rebuking him. He said, Lord, you're not going to do that. That's crazy. Get, you know, get that out of your head. And Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. You're not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. What is Satan trying to do here? He's trying to hinder Jesus from going to the cross, just as he did through Peter. Satan knew that the cross would be his defeat. Genesis 3.15 says that he would crush the head of the serpent through his cross. That's how he would conquer the enemy. And so the enemy wants Jesus to, to, to bypass that will for the crown, and he doesn't do it. He applies a tactic of resistance. He resists Satan's temptation, and he applies the word of God once again to his life. This time he quoted from Deuteronomy 6.13. And the context of this is similar to the one that he previously quoted, Israel is going to go into the land, and God wants to remind them not to forget him when they go into the land. Don't go in there and forget about him and how they receive the blessings, but they were to remember him. And Jesus was going to remember God. He was going to remember his will and knowing that the blessings only come from the Father and not from his will. He could see the end of Psalm 22. When you read Psalm 22, we're told there that Christ from the cross was able to look and foresee in that passage, the fact that he would rule and reign over the earth. But he couldn't get to the end of Psalm 22 before going through the first part of Psalm 22. And that verse begins by saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Right? Jesus was to hang on the cross for the sins of the world that he could get the crown. What about for you and I? Satan will seek to use attractions of the eye to tempt believers to bypass us carrying our cross to buy into the world system. He's a marketing genius. He knows human weaknesses, and he crafts the world system around those things to appeal to the weakness of our flesh, the weakness of our eyes, and we need to not give in to these things. Don't be deceived. Turning to sin, Jesus says, is actually bowing to Satan. It's putting ourselves back under that world order. Buying to these things can't bring lasting satisfaction. They only lead to dissatisfaction and destruction. Think about Abraham and Lot for a second. Good example. Remember Lot, Abraham said, okay, you can choose what land you want. And Lot chose the green pastures near Sodom. That's what he saw. And so he, he moved his family there, and it was detrimental to him and his family. But what did Abraham do? Abraham continued to look for God's kingdom. He was a pilgrim on this earth, knowing that it was God who would establish his eternal kingdom. He fit into that, that category of people who Hebrews eleven thirteen says, died in faith, having seen the promises of far off. So it focuses on our sight this morning. How are we looking? What are we seeing? Are we looking at the temporary pleasures of sin? Or are we looking past these things to the eternal glories that the Lord has for us? And as we do this, it'll give us victory over these temporary temptations. Like Jesus and those of the resistance, we need to look for the eternal things and not the temporary things. Verse 9, then he brought him to Jerusalem set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he shall give his angels charge over you to keep you 
and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against the stone. And so now here we see the third temptation, and it surrounded Jesus' authority as the promised Messiah. He was brought here to the pinnacle of the temple, this high area that overlooked this Kidron Valley. And Satan said, if you're the Messiah, show us your authority, throw yourself down, and God the Father will give his angels to protect you so you don't hit your foot on the stones below. He used scripture here, notice that. He quoted Psalm 91, verses 11 through 12. So he said, hey, Jesus, you're gonna quote scripture? I can do that too. I, I, I can quote the Bible. But notice the way he does it. He does it out of context, and he leaves part of the verses out. When you read Psalm 91, verse 11, you see that the devil left out a part of that verse to keep you in all your ways. What is that referring to? Talking about God's will. You see, the psalmist in that passage is, yes, talking about the Messiah, but the Father would keep him in his will as he walked with him. So the enemy takes that, and he's going to twist Scripture in order to make his point. Shouldn't surprise us that the enemy can use scripture to deceive people. He's done it throughout the years through the cults and the world religions. He does it today in the church through doctrines such as the prosperity doctrine or the health and wealth doctrine. What they'll do is they'll use these different isolated verses from the Old Testament and they'll say, hey, you know, if you really have faith, and man, you'll be rich. God will give you a Lexus. You know, and you'll never be sick, you'll never suffer, you know, and then they'll quote like one verse, Jabez, he, he prayed, you know, and kind of thing. But those verses are out of context. And when you read the entire Bible, verse by verse, you notice that there are times in which the believer is tested. We live in a fallen world. People do suffer. And the believer is told to look for spiritual blessings in the New Testament and not to strive after physical blessings and material wealth. So it's just one way that the enemy uses Scripture. Now, Jesus isn't going to be deceived here. He knows the enemy's attacks, and he... Verse 12, and Jesus answered and said to him, it has, been, it has been said, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. So again, he applies this tactic of resistance. He resists this attack and he applies Deuteronomy 6.16 now to his situation. And the context of this verse, again, is a reminder to the children of Israel. The reminder is, hey guys, when you go into the land, don't worship the Canaanite gods. If not, you're gonna tempt God to respond to your disobedience and discipline you and turn you back to his will. While Jesus had the authority as the Messiah, he would not tempt God. He would not put God in the obligation, the responsibility to work on his behalf in that way if he sinned. The enemy still tempts the believer to walk in pride today the same way. One way is by you know, trying to tell the believer that we can walk in our own will and then asking God to follow along with us and continue to bless us. Right? We say, oh God, I'm gonna do this now, I'm gonna do this, this, and this. I'm going to sin here, and then you're going to forgive me, and you're going to make up for it, right? Okay, let's do it. You know, and the Lord says, no, that's not how it works. We're not to tempt God. We're to follow God's will. He's the one who leads us. We don't lead him. And Jesus wouldn't be in that situation. Yes, God is gracious. He is faithful to forgive when we do confess our sins, but we, know, but we must not act in pride and disobedience in that way. Verse 13, now when the devil had ended every temptation... He departed from him until the opportune time. So Jesus here faces every type of temptation, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and pride of life, and yet he's continually victorious over these things, showing us that he is our rightful leader. He is the one that we can follow for the Christian life. Now, we're talking about temptation. We're talking about spiritual warfare, and 
it's easy to read this text and become discouraged and think, well, yeah, it's easy for Jesus. He's God, right? He had no sin nature. But you know what? The apostles and the writers of the New Testament, they followed this principle and they applied it to believers with the same nature as you and I. Living under the same, you know, evil, you know, living in the same evil world with the same temptations and tactics of the enemy. Let me give you three passages before we close. Peter in 1 Peter 5, 8, 9 says this. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking to whom he may devour. Resist him, steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. So the believer is to resist the enemy in his attacks. We do so by being steadfast in the faith, and the faith is revealed in the scriptures. And so Peter's saying, hey guys, you want to be victorious? Abide in the scriptures, and as a result, you'll have power to resist. James tells us in James 4, 7, therefore submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. So the believer is to submit to God. We are to follow God's will, follow God's ways, and as a result, we're to resist the devil, and what happens? He'll flee from us. Then Paul in Ephesians 6, 13 says, therefore take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. The evil day refers to any time the believer might face temptation or face spiritual warfare. And Paul says, you have all the resources you need in the armor of God. We're to take these things up. The armor of God is really the application of the principles of Scripture to our life as we apply what the Bible says about our circumstance, about our salvation. When we do that, we're able to withstand in that day. Now, I'm told that the Greek word withstand is the same word that Paul, or excuse me, that Peter and James used in their epistles. It's all the same word. It's the word resist. And so the apostles of the New Testament believed that they could have victory in their mission by abiding in the word and resisting temptation. And we can do the same. And when we do so, we're told that he'll flee from us, the enemy. Now back to Luke 4.13. It says, the devil departed from Jesus until an opportune time. Star Wars movies are predictable, right? Disney bought them. They're going to continue to make them. There's going to be like 500 trilogies after the one now. And I can predict to you that there will always be an enemy and there will always be a rebel or resistance or whatever you want to call them in the future. Even so, until we go to be with Jesus or he comes for us, the battles will continue. But we must continue to resist. The battles might change, the terrain might change, the circumstances might change, but there always is going to be a battle. Why? Because he doesn't want us to be effective in our mission. That mission is effective because it's the delivering of souls from the kingdom of darkness. We can continue in this mission as we abide in the word of God. So this message applies to believers, but what about the unbeliever who has never accepted Jesus Christ in their life? Well, this might offend you, but you're in the kingdom of darkness. You're not your own. You're actually controlled by Satan because of your sin. But the good news is that God, through the cross of Jesus Christ, has made a way for you to be rescued. God sent his son to this earth to die on the cross for our sins. He rose him again from the dead to demonstrate to all that he is sufficient to pay our cost and our price for our sins. And the Bible says that if you're willing to turn from your sin today, you can be forgiven of your sins and have eternal life. You don't understand and even know the plan that God has for you as you join his resistance in the work that he did. My life, I mean, the Lord changed my life in this church. I came here when I was a teenager and I was involved in drugs and gangs and heard the gospel and I was saved. I remember I told Pastor Gene one time at a youth uh, 
at our youth group, I got born again. I think that's good. He's like, oh, wow, that's awesome, you know. And the Lord changed my life, and, and he's continued to, to bless and, and to use. And so, and the Lord will do the same thing for your life. All you have to do is surrender your heart to him this morning. So as the guys come up here, you know, to, to have, um, you know, folks pray, if you've never accepted the Lord in your life, I would encourage you to make that step. Ask the Lord into your life and to see what God will do. Amen? Let's pray.